Coming up on Tech Nation, journalist Sonia Purnell tells us about Virginia Hall, the American spy in occupied France during World War II. Her book is called A Woman of No Importance. Then Dr. John Harum from F-Star in Cambridge, England, describes their approach to creating cancer drugs. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will tell us about sleep, its upsides and downsides with all this technology. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. The first time I visited Paris was at the dawn of the Internet. Mobile phones were a dream, and going to Europe was akin to traveling to another planet, far away and pretty much out of communication with everyone. As a tourist, you walked around with a guidebook and a map, both on paper. Wherever you were, you looked up and saw other tourists. They, too, were holding up maps and staring intently. Maps would turn, guidebooks consulted. The people would look up and around and crane their necks and then go back to the map for another round of where are we? Where are we trying to go? And how are we going to get there? It was all a part of the Paris experience. But no more. While I've been to Paris many times over the years, it seems that the full digitalization of the tourism experience has finally taken place. The key technologies here are the Internet, the smartphone, and GPS. You always know where you are, and you can ask them where you want to go, how to drive or take public transportation, or even walk. And the instructions all come with alternate routes. Want to get a car to drive you from exactly that spot? Uber, of course, since Lyft hasn't reached Paris yet. And as you sit in your Uber seat, you watch the route you are being driven on your smartphone. A bit more out of body is that it keeps updating you as to the exact minute you will arrive at your destination, adjusting for traffic while continuing to suggest alternate routes. So there you have it. Walk in the wrong direction, your smartphone shows you walking away from where you want to go. So you turn around and you're back on track. Even when you rent a car, your phone talks to you, takes you all over town and out to the auto routes, confident in telling you precisely which lane. And while all of this is going on, someone from home calls you and they didn't even know you had left. Give yourself up to the technology, and you are home free. But watch your battery life. Lose your charge, and it's back to the old days. Navigating Paris has always been a challenge. Streets coming and going at diagonals and roundabouts every few blocks, with five or six entrances and exits. The official sections of town, the arrondissement, are laid out in a spiral. The 5th is next to the 6th, all right, but it's also adjacent to the 13th. Once you realize that, technology never looks so good. 
I kept thinking about the antithesis of these diagonal streets and spiral layouts, and that would be Salt Lake City. The blocks were all laid out in squares, 660 feet to a side, 10 acres to a block. They were set precisely side by side with room in between so that a healthy-sized road could run down each side. They numbered all the streets as they went away from a single point on Temple Square, noting if you were north, south, east, and west. Find yourself navigating in Salt Lake, and you don't need GPS. You're here. You want to go there. It's all pretty obvious. Meanwhile, back in Paris, the street numbers on buildings almost defy explanation. So don't begin to think that technology has turned Paris into Salt Lake City. But technology does give you more time to experience other mysteries of Paris. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Sonia Purnell, the author of A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. Then Dr. John Harum from F-Star describes a new approach to creating cancer drugs, and Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the ups and downs of getting enough sleep. We can readily imagine the Nazi-occupied Paris of World War II, but it's harder to imagine what Paris and France were like in that hot summer of 1940, when the French people realized that the Germans had broken through. And here's where Sonia Purnell starts her book. And here's where we first meet Virginia Hall. Well, it was a shock to the French. It's a shock to hear about it now. We, this was a first world country, a world power, becoming a subject nation within six weeks. The Germans poured over the border, tanks, flamethrowers, and backed up by aircraft. It was truly terrifying. So 10 million people were running away in the opposite direction, the biggest refugee exodus ever in history. And yet within those people, although there was enemy bombardment, machine gun fire, it was terrifying. There was this woman, an American woman, a young woman from Baltimore, who was driving her ambulance the other way, towards the Germans, towards the battlefield. And the reason she was doing this is because she was going to pick up the wounded from the battlefield and, and then ferry them back to hospital. But, you know, after a while, or really quite quickly, 
A lot of French soldiers realised it was hopeless, absolutely, and they were abandoning their posts. And yet, this woman from Baltimore, America's not even in the war yet. For a long, long time, it won't be in the war. But she continues. It is incredible. But she was sort of driven. She had this need to prove her worth and to do something useful. Well, she certainly did that. Was she of French ancestry? No, I don't think so. I think um, British ancestry, as far as I can find out. No, but she had studied in Paris during Les Années Folles, you know, the Roaring Twenties. She'd come from Baltimore. She'd come from America, which had racial segregation, had prohibition on liquor. She'd gone to Paris during this great period of artistic and cultural flowering. It had turned her head. She'd had the most amazing time. She'd gone to jazz clubs. She'd met writers and artists. We and all want to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She loved France. She, it was a love affair for her. But so it was freedom. And, you know, she wanted to fight against extremism and, and fascism and, and had seen it rise during those studies in Europe in the 1920s. She'd seen all of this happening on the horizon coming Europe's way. And, and she'd always been disturbed by it. She wanted to do something about it. Now, describe to us this prosthetic leg. So the prosthetic leg that she called Cuthbert um, weighed about eight pounds, was hollow wood, painted kind of white flesh colour, but with a metal heel and toe. Now, this was attached to her, I mean, completely unlike the computer-operated masterpieces that you see now. This was so simple, no tech at all. It was attached to her with leather straps and big buckles around her waist. Now, imagine hot weather the leather would chafe her skin until it was raw and bled and her stump even though she had these special cushioned socks when she could get hold of them in wartime France that wasn't easy put it mildly um they tried to cushion the stump with that but the stump would still get extremely sore and would also blister and bleed so from the day that she had that accident she was never ever without pain and she couldn't flex her ankle nor could she look it so steps going up and going down hills going up and going down were excruciating and very difficult to maneuver so to become a guerrilla leader and all the things that she did to operate in a city Lyon in southeastern France which is completely hilly it's a bit like San Francisco imagine what it would be like if you had a prosthetic leg as um, primitive as that and as she's flying along in her ambulance again and again to the lines to bring soldiers and the wounded back, because many people were wounded that were just ancillary on the ground, she also had a prosthetic leg, a 1940s-era prosthetic leg. Yes, actually even 1930s. I mean, this is what... It's an amazing story by itself, Virginia's life. When it truly becomes epic, and I honestly... Don't use that word unless you really have to, but on this occasion it really is. She had this wooden leg. She'd had a hunting accident when she was 27. She'd literally shot herself in the foot. Um, she'd got gangrene. The leg had to be amputated, the very last way of trying to save her life. As I say, she'd been just 27. She'd been an adventurous soul forever. She wanted to be an ambassador, but she kept being knocked back because she was a woman. She'd tried to um, so hard, but now... She saw her life really as a sort of wasted. She didn't know what to do with it. And so she put herself in dangerous ways. She, she took risks that other people weren't able to or willing to. And she had this resolve and this determination. I think perhaps her disability enhanced that. It certainly drove her on. She wanted to prove what she could still do rather than what she couldn't do anymore.
So the Germans come, they occupy much of France, much of the northern, middle and northern part of France. And she wants to go back. Yeah, I know. So after driving ambulances under bombardment, you think most people would think they'd like to go home and have a quiet life, but not Virginia, no way. And she decides that uh, she wants to go and help Britain. I mean, Britain's the only uh, nation in Europe pretty much standing up to Hitler, but it expects to be uh, invaded at any time. And through a really strange series of chance encounters, she ends up being recruited by a British secret service called the SO. Now, they have a rule against women and they have a rule against foreigners. But the thing is that when people met Virginia, she had such a force of character. She had such sort of ingenuity that people kind of got their rule book and they tore it up and they never looked at it again. So they tried to send all sorts of secret agents into France because all of the others had been evacuated after Dunkirk. But, you know, not that many people were willing, unsurprisingly. She was given a 50-50 chance of survival. There was very little training because no one had ever done this kind of stuff before. She was going in to set up the nucleus of the future resistance armies and she was kind of have to make it up pretty much as she went along. And at that time... This kind of spying was new. I mean, it was thought to be ungentlemanly. Yes, indeed. It was completely new. So there wasn't a manual that you could consult or anything. She had a little bit of training. She was taught by um, a friendly burglar how to pick locks, and she was taught how to replace dust on the surface if you remove something. And most um, happily, she had a little uh, slot in her metal heel. The foot was partly metal that she could put a little microfilm documents in. She was also given, it has to be said, a licence to kill. She was given some um, some poison pills, cyanide pills, which were little soluble um, things that if you broke them up and put them in someone's food, you could kill them in 45 seconds. So I mean, everyone knew that this was no game. This was a matter of life or death. But she was going in without any reception committee, without any direct means of contacting London. She was going in undercover as an American journalist. But anyone she approached could have been a member of the Gestapo or the Vichy police. It was incredibly perilous work. And nothing had ever been done like this before in a foreign country behind enemy lines. We're talking 80 years ago. Even today, the whole idea of women in combat is is still controversial. Imagine how controversial it was there. But sometimes when times are desperate you know these decisions are are made and and everyone who met her realized that she had this determination and they thought they'd give her a try and there were a number of things that we could guess at you know the fake bald bottomed uh, suitcases the fountain pen squirting poison and of course my personal favorite the fake horse dung a lot of horses around there yeah a lot of horses around there and if you know that one vehicle going over the horse dung is being blown sky high it's incredibly effective because from then on German convoys German vehicles of any sort whenever they saw horse dung in the road and like you say it was uh, very common everything would have to screech to a halt while they crept forward and tried to find out whether it was the explosive sort or the normal sort so um, again you know this was in in a little way a sort of forerunner of James Bond. I mean, if you think of Q in the James Bond stories who invented all these extraordinary things, there were these boffins, these scientists on the outskirts of London coming up with all these curious gadgets, I suppose the best word for them. Now, how do you get this person into occupied France? 
can't really parachute her in. No, she didn't parachute in. And they'd been trying to parachute people in for six months and it had never worked out. But because she was American, this is actually very useful. So she could go in because America was not at war. So remember, she's fighting this war on her own account. She doesn't have to do any of this. So she went in undercover as an American journalist for the New York Post. Well, as I say, she had no direct way of communicating with London, either the intelligence that she was gleaning from day one, by the way. She picked up stuff that was immediately vital for the war effort. But in those early days, she had no radio operator, no radio. So she wrote articles for the New York Post, and within those articles were coded messages. And in those early days, that was the only way she could contact London with information and they couldn't contact her at all. Then, however, she made friends, which she was very, very clever at, with the American consul and his staff, and they were able to smuggle messages out over the border into Switzerland because, of course, they were still neutral, and those messages got back to London. But we're talking several days, so if she was in trouble, there was absolutely no-one there to help her. She was on her own. Completely. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is journalist Sonia Purnell. You might know her from her work at The Economist, The Telegraph, and The Sunday Times, or her books, including Just Boris or Clementine, The Life of Mrs. Winston Churchill. She's here today with A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. Any of us who have watched old movies are familiar with the black citrons that we have the uh, Gestapo jumping out of in the black leather, and then the nearby is sort of a gray van with something on top spinning around trying to find the wireless signal. In those days, there weren't a lot of signals like there are today with all our cell phones mm. and all this. It was a pretty clear environment, and yet this is how they traced down those people sending out signals. Well, they did. I mean, being a radio operator was a a quasi-suicidal profession, to be honest. You you very rarely lasted more than a few weeks because the Germans helped um, by the Vichy police, by the French police, had this triangulation system very very clever, quite quick, they could track down a signal to within a few yards um, increasingly quickly, sometimes you know, within 30 minutes. Now these messages sent by Morse code over the radios took a while because they had to be coded, they had to be sent by Morse code. Quite often they they were corrupted um, in transmission, they had to be done again. All that time, the radio operator would have a pistol on the table in front of them. They would perhaps have one of these poison capsules in their mouth, knowing that if they were caught, they would be tortured and killed in the most grisly way. So if they didn't bite the capsule, just swallowed it, they would survive. But if they bit into it, they too would die very quickly. And some of them did that because they knew that what would befall them if they were caught was so grisly. And as I say, they would track down the signals, the Gestapo would arrive um, and capture you. So it was incredibly nerve-wracking work. A a lot of them completely had sort of breakdowns after a while. It wasn't something but mere mortals on the whole could do for very long. Although Virginia, on her second mission, was also a radio operator. She trained to be one, and she continued doing it. And by this stage, the Germans had even more sophisticated tracking equipment, including special aeroplanes called storks, that if you were in the countryside, they could fly over big distances and and track down your signals. But once again, she eluded them. 
she was this master spy, this master of disguises and master of escapes. How do you disguise the fact that you have a prosthetic leg, number one, and number two, that you grew up American, no matter what. You grew up on, you know, fabulous food, and she was very athletic. And you know, how do you disguise this? Well, on her first mission, she was this um, undercover as a journalist, but she also was building up these resistance networks. And sometimes, therefore, she had to be three or four different people in an afternoon. So she would alter her parting, put on glasses, hats, different clothes. Um, she might put little rubber slithers in her cheeks to fatten out her face so that it looked different. She could hide her hands. Your hands are quite a giveaway to you, so she would wear gloves to, to hide her hands. And with a prosthetic leg, with Cuthbert, which is the name that she gave to her leg, to try and hide her limp, which was more pronounced when she was tired, she took huge strides. But that, again, also drew attention to her. But you know when she came back for her second mission, the Gestapo knew so much about her. They knew what she looked like, the fact that she limped. She could no longer be an American journalist, and America was at war by this point anyway. So she went back as a milkmaid. She got some Hollywood makeup artists to teach her how to draw wrinkles in on her face so realistically that German officers could come right up to her and not know that she wasn't a 60 or 70 year old peasant. She wore um, lots and lots of thick skirts to make her look stouter. She even went to a notoriously fierce dentist in London to have her beautiful white American teeth ground down so they looked like a French peasant's because she knew that the only way that she could survive was by looking completely unlike Virginia Hall, because by this point, every single Gestapo unit in France had been told about her and given a picture of her and been told to find and destroy her. She was considered the most dangerous allied spy of all. But she still had this American accent. She could speak French and a raft of other languages, but she couldn't get rid of her accent. So she would use this croaky, raspy old lady's voice to try and disguise the fact that she was clearly not a, a natural French speaker. And amazingly, however far-fetched this sounds, she got away with it. She was never caught by the Gestapo just tells you how invisible women can be. <laughs> yeah, because for a long time, of course, well, for the, you know, the first part of the war, the Gestapo thought, well, you know, women don't get involved in this dirty resistance work. Well, they were wrong. I mean, women, we just don't realise how important women were during the war. They were unbelievably brave. Many of them will never know their names, paid with their lives. And it's really about time that they got a bit of a shout-out, to be frank. It's one thing to have the Gestapo after you. Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, was after her. So Klaus Barbie was um, a commander in the Gestapo, hugely feared. Um, a lot of people talk about his eyes being those little serpent eyes. He, he became this almost mythical creature, but the problem was that the myth was true. He tortured his way through the resistance. He absolutely did not understand mercy. He played with people. And he is held to be responsible for having slaughtered maybe 14,000 members of the resistance. I mean, the figures are probably impossible to verify, but he certainly was responsible for many, many deaths and, and his own brand of torture. And I can tell you that he reserved his worst torture of all for women. It's just sort of unspeakable, but he was obsessed with Virginia. He said he would give 
anything to get his hands on her. Um, and he spent the entire sort of second half of the war trying to track her down. You write at one point she was about to make a visit to a particular person of, of interest, and she paused, not wanting to be followed. And she asked for a newspaper, but as the shopkeeper gave her change, he leaned toward her and whispered, don't go up, the police are there. How important were just all the people of France to her success? Well, it was very hard when she first went in because of the shock of defeat. Many French didn't want to know. They wanted to try and lead as quiet a life as possible. There was very little food. There were no clothes. There were no shoes. There was no fuel. They were more worried in the, those first sort of days and months and, and years in trying to keep their kids um, warm and, and fed. And, and they certainly didn't want to take orders from some foreign woman coming in from who knows where telling them what to do. So this wasn't easy to recruit these people. It became easier when America came into the war, when the tide of war started changing. But in those early days, she was on her own, but she found two wonderful lieutenants, most unlikely ones. Um, actually, amongst her first recruits were some nuns, but then she turned to the, the local brothel, madam, Germaine Garin, one of the most glamorous, beautiful figures you can possibly imagine, and also unbelievably brave. And she brought in her girls, or filles de joie, sounds so much nicer in French, who did all sorts of spying and all sorts of real daring do for Virginia, and they included their doctor as well. Now, at one point when her cover was blown, she took her prosthetic leg and hiked out through the Pyrenees to get to Spain in the snow. I mean, she really was relentless and unstoppable. Yes, I mean, she did actually say that the um, escape over the Pyrenees was her personal worst moment of the war. So the Gestapo were on onto her. Um, there'd been a double agent, a priest, who'd managed to infiltrate her network. Um, her networks were huge by this point. She was extremely well-known, too well-known across France in the resistance. This was bound to happen. So she had to escape over the Pyrenees into Spain during one of the worst winters for 200 years. Very, very deep snow. She had a pass or guide to take her over, but they had to go over 8,000 feet. They had to use a pass that no one would think that any sane, rational human being would um, go over in, in that weather because then she might just have a chance of getting away. But the thing was, she couldn't tell her guide about Cuthbert, her wooden leg, because these guys were pretty hard-bitten. They were sort of ex-Spanish um, Civil War warriors and they didn't want to get caught either. So if they thought you were going to slow them down, they'd most likely push you in a ravine or shoot you in the back of the head. So she had to hide the fact that Cuthbert existed, but she could neither flex nor lock her ankle. She had to climb sideways up and then sort of lean forward going down. Blood was absolutely pouring out of her legs. She was in true, true agony. But, but somehow, and goodness knows how, she made it, and secret documents that I saw that were written a bit later on said that you know, this was a record all by itself because the rivets on the leg were actually coming apart by this point, and yet she, she got over. She was only in her 30s. I mean, this was, you know, something that really was exceptional. Who knew what about Virginia that you were able to find? 
Well, it was known that there'd been uh, an extraordinary secret agent with a wooden leg. Uh, her name would crop up from time to time in, in accounts of, of the war. But what had never really happened before was pulling the entire story together. I've been speaking with Sonia Purnell, the author of A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, a different approach to cancer treatments and how technology might help us to sleep better. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with journalist Sonia Purnell about Virginia Hall, the American who became a spy during World War II and occupied France and somehow escaped detection in spite of the fact that she had a prosthetic leg. The book is A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. Well, from the files of the resistance in Lyon to the National Archives in London, the parachute drops in the uh, drop zones, I guess we call them, to Paris, to CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and even one of her comrades, Pierre Fayol, I believe. Who knew what about Virginia that you were able to find? Well, it was known um, that there'd been uh, an extraordinary secret agent with a wooden leg. Uh, her name would crop up from time to time in, in accounts of, of the war. But what had never really happened before was pulling the entire story together. I mean, th this involved a lot of um, contemporaneous accounts, which I managed to find a lot of documents um, scattered all over the place. Some were still classified. I managed to get two ex-intelligence officers to help me declassify them, which was great. 
great. But she had 20 different code names. Um, a lot of things were contradictory. Do you know, a lot of documents have been lost or destroyed. But gradually, um, three years of intense research in the US here in, in the UK and in France... I managed to pull that story together. I managed to spend some time with her wonderful niece, um, Lorna Catling, who still lives in Baltimore, who was able to fill in some of the gaps. But um, I also found this wonderful resource in Lyon, one of the, the, the city that was her headquarters in France, where I found these letters written um, to each other from the young men that she recruited to fight alongside her because on her second mission they became guerrilla leaders. They took on the Germans and they won. They cleared their part of France without any professional help whatsoever. And these guys writing to each other after the war, talking about the women they called the Madonna of the Mountains because she seemed to be able to work miracles. And they, they use these phrases such as it been worth being born just to have met and worked alongside Virginia Hall and she was with them for just two months. So she seems to have had this extraordinary hold on people. She was almost sort of, she almost bewitched them and she's a legend in that part of France to this day and it's so bizarre that here in America, her homeland, that she isn't nearly as well known as she should be. And what about the CIA? Where do they come in? After the war, um, the American Secret Service she'd gone on to work for was disbanded. It's eventually, it's, it's kind of um, child, if you like, was that the CIA in Virginia was desperate to join. It took some time for her to be taken on, unbelievably. Even so, she was one of the first few women officers. And then I'm afraid to say that those doors that opened for her in war when things were so desperate that they would take anyone who was good at something, didn't matter who you were, it was what you could do, that reversed in, in, in peacetime. And, and the CIA itself will now admit that they didn't use her talents well. But if I managed to get the, 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 um, the personnel files about her job appraisals and she was undermined and belittled and put to one side, she was ordered to report to an officer two ranks below her who was male, her ideas were stolen by other people. And it is very, very sad to see how this great hero, this great, great war heroine. But the problem was that the men, a lot of the men had not done nothing like what she'd done in the field. And so she made them uncomfortable and there were rows over her pay and promotions and all this kind of thing. But it's, it's interesting that now the CIA do accept that um, and accept it publicly. And, and they also um, say publicly that many of the techniques that she pioneered in France in the 1940s, they still use today, including in Afghanistan before and after 9-11. And finally, the new first public director of CIA, Gina Haspel, recently talked about how her position was only possible because of the, or standing on the shoulders of heroines who'd gone before her, who'd battled against prejudice. And it's pretty clear that she must have been talking about Virginia. So her legacy goes on. She's a sort of woman of our times. And I, I find her unbelievably modern, actually, in, in her approach and, and her attitude to life. Um, she was an absolute one-off, though. Well, between blowing up bridges and sabotaging trucks and trains and all those things that you do, she did find love. She did indeed. So, yes, I mean, she was ambushing convoys and all sorts of things and, and you know, f constantly asking for backup because she was one 30-something American woman with hundreds and hundreds of quite 
desperate, quite lawless men trying to enforce her command. There was a lot of pushback. It was her, but she managed it. At the end of that fighting, um, you know, all that time she'd been asking for backup from base, but she never got it. Right at the end of the fighting, two American officers finally are parachuted in to help her, one of whom, Paul Goyo, is, he was younger than her, shorter than her, um, sort of more junior than her, he he respected her, he took her commands of that question, but he also made her laugh. And I think, you know, she really needed a bit of lightening of her life. She'd been through so much and seen so much, and suddenly this sort of wonderfully charming French-American guy just sort of turns up, you know, parachutes in from the skies, and, you know, they stayed together until the day she died, and, and it was, a, I believe, a really true love story. It was a wonderful match. Now, in truth, with all this relentlessness and unstoppability, she did have some characteristics that were challenging. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, listen, if you've been through that kind of um, life, you know, you, you're, you're not always a pussycat. I mean, th there's no doubt that she, she could have a little bit of a temper. And when people crossed her, which they did a, a lot or tried to, you know, she was a formidable opponent. But I think one should also remember that there was um, a really compassionate side to her. So she brought in all these parachute drops of guns and ammunition and explosives, all sorts of military paraphernalia. But she would ask the packers just to slip a little packet in between the guns of, of tea. Um, which she loved tea and, and she would make tea for some of her her sort of fellow soldiers and commandos, you know, of an evening or before they went out on, on a mission or something. There was something kind and gentle to her too. There was another side. It wasn't just the warrior side, that she was multifaceted. That's not to say that she was ever a pushover, because she sure wasn't. Virginia was not entirely unrecognized by the powers that be. No, this is true. In fact, I discovered that um, a lot of people had no idea but that she had been honoured by the French Republic uh, just after the war um, that had been so completely lost that she was honoured by a British king, but in, in secret. And she was also awarded the only civilian woman in World War II to be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross by um, the US. Now, President Truman himself was so impressed by this, he wanted to give it to her at the White House with a big fanfare of publicity. But you see... She said, no, thank you, Mr. President, because she wanted to go on to be a secret agent again after the war. So, of course, she didn't want any publicity. So it was given to her in, in secret as well. And I can tell you, when I was researching her life and, and finding sometimes it d difficult to follow leads, it, she, I felt a little as if she was playing cat and mouse with me, that she didn't necessarily want to make it too easy for me to find out about her. And actually, it sure wasn't too easy, but it was... So worth it in the end. She's such an inspiration. She's such a woman of our time. She battled through all sorts of discrimination against women, against the disabled. And she showed what she could do. And what she could do was truly spectacular. Once the Germans occupied France, then she began to see and was bothered a great deal by what you called the, the media manipulation, the constant distortion of the truth and mounting hatred and racism and lies. Yes, uh, 
this happened, the, the media, I mean, not really TV, we're talking more the, the press and radio in, in those days. Um, it was all part of a totalitarian state. They wanted to completely control the message. So um, the same thing was put out again and again and again, even though people could see with their own eyes that this wasn't true. But uh, the British were blamed for there being so little food in, in the stores and, and that all the food was taken off the farms. Um, well, it certainly wasn't the British fault. The British were trying to fight the Germans. But by um, kind of moving, displacing the enemy to the British, saying it was their fault that they'd abandoned France at Dunkirk rather than evacuating an army to come back. Um, so there was always an, an enemy and there was always um, the, the hatred against the Jews in, in Vichy France is, is, is terrifying. The number of Jews rounded up, but not just Jews, any sort of dissident at all. I think people don't realise just quite how totalitarian France became at that time, that everything was manipulated and the casualty was truth. So no one could trust anyone or anything anymore. Well, Sonia, thank you so much. I hope you come back. See us again. Thank you very much indeed. My guest today is Sonia Purnell. Her book is A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. It's published by Viking, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We're all aware that cancer treatments are getting better and better, and that some new cancer treatments are sometimes affecting a cure. Perhaps the most promising new area of treatment at this point in time is called immuno-oncology. I asked Dr. John Harum, president and CEO of FSTAR, to tell us what that means. What is immuno-oncology? Yes, so in, in the uh, treatment of cancer, historically uh, the focus has been to kill the tumor cells, uh, for example using chemo or radiation. And, and what has been discovered in more recent years is that it's possible to also stimulate the immune response in the patient to actually help in killing the tumor cells. And it's actually become apparent that it's much more efficient in many cases to, to kill the tumor cells that way uh, by, in fact, stimulating the, the, the patient's own immune, immune response. So the therapies that are leveraging this approach uh, are basically aimed at the, the cells of the immune system, so basically trying to stimulate uh, the T cells, as they are called, the white blood cells of, uh, of the patient, to be more aggressive in their uh, ability to kill the tumor cells. Uh, the in immune system is full of uh, regulatory uh, pathways uh, that essentially have the function in the normal uh, environment, in, in our normal life, to prevent us from having uh, autoimmunity. So we meet all sorts of stuff, and, and, and so the immune system could go uh, berserk at any point in time, and therefore it's full of regulatory mechanisms. And the cancer is essentially hijacking those regulatory mechanisms to, to, to sort of exist in silent. Uh, Never mind about us. Exactly. You go yeah. around and, and, and the immune system is very yeah. active all the time. And yes. So one of the aspects, if I understand what you're saying, is to get the immune system, embolden the immune system to begin to look at these cancer cells. How do you do that? So if you think about um, this, the famous car analogy, you have a, an accelerator and you have a brake. 
what you can do with these mechanisms is you can divide them in two. Some of them are breaks, so the immune system has regulatory breaks, and then there's also some mechanisms that are stimulatory to the immune system. And, and what you can do is you can design drugs, um, medicines that will uh, specifically uh, interfere with those either brakes or, or, or uh, accelerator pedals. So you can basically either inhibit a brake or you can stimulate an accelerator on Rev the system. Rev up an accelerator. Yes. And, and so both of approaches are being pursued in the immuno-oncology space. Uh, companies are developing drugs that either take a brake away from the immune system uh, and basically lets it operate more freely uh, in the patient, uh, and other approaches are designed to, to directly stimulate uh, the white blood cells to be more aggressive. And obviously this comes with a cost uh, of more side effects potentially, so these therapies typically have uh, pretty significant side effects that you need to manage in, in, at the same time. When it comes to a cancer cell, what would encouraging a, taking a break off do in the immune system, and what would uh, up, you know, pressing on the accelerator yes. do. So what the, does that mean? The immune system uh, has um, something called T-cells or white blood cells that constantly survey the entire body. They float around with the blood and in the tissues, and they are looking for uh, something that is a danger signal, something that should not be there, um, something that is mutated or a foreign uh, appearance of a protein, which typically is found on the surface of tumor cells. What you do with the drugs is, uh, with the medicines uh, in cancer, is that you, uh, you basically uh, inhibit this from happening so that the T-cells, the, the white blood cells, have free reign in recognizing what they can, and then they will start killing the tumor cells. Now, I've also heard the term bispecific. What does that mean? So the, uh, the medicines I mentioned before, uh, they come in, in different shapes and forms. One is what is called an antibody. So that's essentially a molecule that uh, will bind to something after you give it into the body. It's, it's a naturally occurring molecule uh, that we can make it turn into a medicine. And that antibody will bind to one of those regulatory mechanisms, one of those mechanisms that the immune system has. That typically binds to one uh, particular regulator. Uh, our company works with something called bispecific antibodies where you, in fact, have two different specificities put into one molecule. So you have a supercharged antibody that will do two, th two different things at the same time. Uh, and, and so although the therapies that I mentioned in the beginning have been very successful, it's still in a small subset of patients. So, for example, in the first trials in malignant melanoma, it was about 20% of the patients that were cured, but still 80% did not have a response. And, and so the, um, the industry is pursuing uh, approaches where you can increase the number of patients that are responding to more than 20%. And in order to do that, they're looking at uh, combining different approaches. So having both a um, both uh, the brake and the accelerator principle at the same time in your compound. And that's what we do with our bispecific. The approach that we are taking with the bispecific uh, is to, to um, leverage two different uh, mechanisms at the same time. And, and we talked about the, the principle of brakes. So you can have one part of the molecule that will bind to the brake and, and take the inhib inhibitory signal away. And then the other part of the molecule will bind to the tumor cell. And the, the benefit of that is that not only 
do you regulate the immune system and you basically stimulate the immune response, you also bring the, uh, the, the white blood cell to the tumor tissue where it's going to do its action. So you basically have an... Uh, You're bringing two together. Yes, and you recruit the T-cell. That's what, uh, how we think about it. You recruit the T-cell into the tumor microenvironment, and then it becomes much more potent in its ability to kill the, uh, the tumor tissue. Uh, and that's something we can only do with a bispecific because you need both of those two activities to sit in the same molecule to have that sort of grabbing feature of the molecule to, to pull the T-cells into the tumor tissue. Formerly, we, we were making the, the medicines against cancer where typically the antibodies would bind directly to the tumor cell and, and try to kill the tumor cell. But now what we are doing is, on top of that, we are having a, a specificity that brings the T cell into the tumor tissue. And uh, at the same time as stimulating the T cell, it also brings it into the local area where it needs to kill the tumor. And, uh, and through that recruitment into the tumor uh, tissue, we get killing of the tumor. We also have uh, 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 proliferation of the T cell so that it will turn into many T cells and become more, much more active because it's stimulated in that tumor It divides and it divides again. And uh, so you're actually bringing in a cascade. And through that, you can uh, also see uh, effect at distant sites in the body. So if it's a patient with very advanced cancer, where you have metastasis, as it's called, when it's spread, uh, those T cells, when they get activated, they will, they will then through this antibody, they will be zoomed into all these different sites. They'll start looking elsewhere yes. because they've seen it. They've seen and, it and, yeah. and another benefit is that you have uh, potentially lower side effects uh, from doing it this way rather than have an antibody that you know, works everywhere in the body because of the zooming into the tumor tissue, uh, you have less of the systemic side effects that uh, we sometimes see with these medicines. And some of those medicines kill healthy cells as well. Yes, exactly. The, once the T cells are activated, they don't necessarily uh, have the ability to only kill the tumor cells. They, 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 and that's why we see the uh, immunological side effects in some of these trials uh, and, and, and in the patients treated. Well, you've got a lot of work to do at F-STAR. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I hope you come back and keep us updated. We very much appreciate Thank it, John. You. Dr. John Harum is the president and CEO of F-Star in Cambridge, England. More information is available at www.f-star.com. That's www.f-star.com. I was looking at a map of the United States with source data generated by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. It showed state by state, county by county, how much of the population routinely got seven hours sleep. Sticking out in very dark coloring was one county at the very southern tip of Nevada. Hmm. Oh, yeah. That's Las Vegas. Well, everybody wants a good night's sleep, so I asked Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft, can't science do something for us? Can't technology do something for us? We all need a good night's sleep. I've got two little kids, and uh, that's a challenge. And I've also been across the planet about three times, so the jet lag is catching up. Um, so certainly, personally, and I think more in the scientific 
regimen, more in the scientific literature and in the zeitgeist, people recognizing that sleep is super important and lack thereof, not getting your seven or eight hours contributes to risk of all sorts of diseases from obesity to depression to even high risks of cancer and Alzheimer's. Now, are you sure we actually need eight hours? I think each of us, you know, we talk about precision personalized medicine. We're all wired a bit differently. Even our genetics play a role in how much sleep we need. I've had my 23andMe panel and it gives me uh, some rough data that shows I'm less likely to be a deep sleeper, hopefully a deep thinker, but deep uh, sleeper. And I definitely have noticed with my Fitbit data that I tend to run lower compared to others my age and sex. So now with these technologies as simple as a wearable on your wrist, we're starting to track simple sleep metrics, deep sleep, light sleep, wake time. And companies like Fitbit, which now have billions of nights of sleep integrated, can compare you to others in different locations of the world. And so genetics is one element that plays a role. Um, I'm more likely to wake up at 7.21 a.m. That's my <laughs> genetic. Is that kind of like I have, a, I have a time that all things being equal, I kind of I wake up right about this same time every day. And we know that men and women have slightly different sleep cycles and it changes as we age. So again, sleep is a bit different for all of us. And uh, certainly it doesn't mean we all need eight hours sleep. But in general, uh, there's a bit of a almost a syndrome of sleep deficiency, particularly as we're more addicted to our digital devices and staying up late watching Netflix. And uh, and there's some pretty compelling data that lack of sleep will really impact our immunity, our, our memory, um, our ability to be creative and think clearly. Uh, weight gain is one example. And so some of these new technologies we can talk about are giving us some insights and hopefully some digital nudges to improving our sleep hygiene. Now, let me ask you this. How is it possible that not sleeping leads to weight gain other than you have more waking hours, you just keep eating? We have a complicated physiology. It seems to impact our cortisol levels, other elements that impact our hunger. If you do nighttime snacking, even the time of day, we've talked about circadian rhythms in prior episodes. You know, the time of day when you might eat impacts how much you might metabolize. Certainly certain medications work at different times as well. So the circadian cycle is one part of that. So I think some of this is still being figured out, but we do know that, you know, very simple interventions, you know, avoiding caffeine before bed, having a bit of a, a cooler room to, to sleep in. Uh, we've seen some sleep tech where the bed will warm up when you go to sleep and cool down, uh, and these lights will guide you to wake up at the right time. So lots of new ways to hopefully, with your sleep number bed or your wearable, your bedside monitor, uh, nudge you in the right direction. You know, it is interesting. I, I do have to say that I have a friend who always kept her room really dark, and her guest room was the same way. <laughs> when I went there in this dark room... I just kept sleeping and realized that the light in my room was waking me up. The light in your room can wake you up. The, the light patterns that come from your mobile devices. So now you've seen some iPhones and others uh, change the it's a little more blue form of, of light that can affect your circadian rhythms. Many folks might try and enhance their circadian rhythms with melatonin. That's sometimes helpful in uh, shifting your sleep cycle if you're jet lagged, for example. So a dark room can certainly help, a cooler room. And then uh, understanding that using some of these new gadgets, we can start to get insights into, again, our, our sleep cycle, deep light wakefulness, heart rate change. Uh, my Apple Watch doesn't have its own sleep app, but there's several on the market. One that I like is called... Um, 
auto-sleep, and it gives me very detailed data, more than I even know what to do with it with in terms of what percentage my heart rate's dropping. It gives me a bit of an integrated sleep score because all sleep's not equal. Just because you've been in bed from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. doesn't mean you had eight hours of quality sleep. So we're looking at quality measures too, which will become more personalized and tuned. And now even my several of my digital apps will remind me, hey, Daniel, it's time to get to, to bed. And uh, a consistent bedtime is also helpful as well. You love those little nudges. I'd take the phone and throw it out. It says, <laughs> you know, it's probably time to get out of here. <laughs> well, these nudges Everybody's can be different, you know, yeah, and they can be annoying. There's some, they sometimes they remind you while you're, you know, flying across the country on a red eye that it's, you know, time to go take a walk. <laughs> so uh, yeah. we, we need to put them in context. And I think these sort of digital coaches and nudges will become more tuned. They're going to know your genomic information. They're now even sleep masks that'll apply light to your eyeballs, some of which can even help you trigger um, what's called lucid dreaming, which many folks try to achieve to get inside your dream state and, and take action and empower yourself and have the dream you want to have. So there's, you know, rings like the aura ring out of Finland is a, one of the early sort of devices on your little finger that can track sleep all the way down to, you know, Wi-Fi. Some engineers at MIT uh, have engineered Wi-Fi to measure vital signs and sleep patterns of up to 10 or more people in the same room. <laughs> Ten or more people with everyone going to sleep. <laughs> Maybe other things are going sorry, on. Sorry, Daniel. That is a specification on the technology product. <laughs> but only graduate students would think to uh, to put ten people in the room and expect them all to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just hit me funny. It just hit me funny. But the truth is that with all of this data, I think for the first time ever, we'll know more about how people sleep. And for example, it's different across generations. There's some, you know, fascinating crowdsourced data, again, from Fitbit. You know, Gen Z tends to go to bed after midnight, sleep in a little bit more, and baby boomers go to bed closer to 11 p.m. and get up earlier, like 7.53 a.m. on average, right? Again, crowdsourced over millions of individuals. And then we're learning, putting my pediatric hat on, that it's super important for kids and their brains and their development to not only uh, get a good amount of exercise and limited screen time, but a right amount of sleep. And we know that teenagers, and I have one as well, like to sleep in a bit more. And some school systems are actually changing their, you know, 8 a.m. start time to, let's say, 9 or 9.30 to better, uh, you know, mesh with the, the brain and the development of a, of a teenager's uh, sleep and uh, developmental needs. And if you learn nothing else from this segment, when that screen on your a smartphone or your tablet starts to go kind of bluish, it's not broken. It says it's about nighttime. We need to kind of tone it down. Right. And there's light bulbs that can do similar things, not just on your smartphone. So there's this convergence of, you know, gadgets and gizmos. But when you put them all together and you personalize them to you and you gain a bit of a sleep score and insights, it can really super, you know, it can very much impact your long-term health. You can be much more proactive if you're getting good amounts of sleep, whether you're a student studying, if you're a physician pulling an all-nighter uh, in the operating room and need to recover, uh, if you're a, a parent with young children. Lots of ways we need to pay attention to our sort of sleep health to optimize our health for the long term. Thanks for coming in, Daniel. Thanks, Mara. Have a good night's sleep. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2019 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 
Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monty Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.